am so glad to get to share today. And for those of you who don't know me, um, I am a logistics and marketing professor at Wheaton College. And I realize that we have a lot of kids in here today, so I might have gone a little bit overboard with the infographics in my slides. Um, but I'm really excited about my message today. Um, it's been on my heart for a while, and when I listened to Dan's message from last week, um, I, I really felt like this message really is for this season and this day. So what I'm going to talk about today is I'm going to talk about gleaning. And I love the concept of gleaning. How many of you are familiar with gleaning? Okay, gleaning um, first turns up in the Bible in Leviticus. And um, I want to talk about gleaning and its role in hope in practice. So last week, Dan talked about hope, um, the heart, the optimism, the um, the P, perseverance, <laughs> and the expectation that we have. And as a business professor, we like to present cases. Here's an example of what hope looks like. Here's an example of how we can put hope to practice. So that's what I'm going to do today. Um, so I want to talk about gleaning. I want to talk about how friendship and strength restore bitterness back to delight. Sounds hopeful, doesn't it? Um, and so when we, when we think about the word gleaning, gleaning is the art or the practice of collecting leftover crops from a farmer's field after they have been harvested or on fields where it's not profitable to harvest. So you go out and you know the frost is coming and you have a whole field that you're not going to get to. So you open it up to the community. And the community can come in, and maybe they, they live in town, they're city people like me. I won't talk a lot about agriculture, I'm not an agricultural expert. Um, but anybody could come in, and this was established in Leviticus. Um, it was in practice all the way through um, recent times, actually. So in poor agricultural nations around the world, gleaning is still a practice. It was really popular as a way for caring for the poor in a lot of Christian kingdoms. So think England during the medieval ages. Gleaning was a huge practice. But before we start thinking of gleaning as welfare and food stamps, and we get on our high horse of thinking this is just a way of helping people who don't want to work, I want to point out that gleaning allows people to have dignity in meeting their needs where they couldn't. It opens, people opened up their fields and they said, come and harvest for yourself from seeds you didn't plant. And even better, we could hypothesize, we could gesture that maybe Jesus and his disciples were gleaning one Sunday, well, Saturday, Sabbath, when they walked through the fields and they picked wheat and grain, and they ate as they walked, and they ticked off the Pharisees. Remember that story? It's in three of the Gospels, Luke, Matthew, and Mark. And so even Jesus benefited from gleaning. In fact, gleaning is so important in rural societies that it was even sacred. So here's where it pops up first in the Bible. In Leviticus 19.9, and this is in the law. These are the books we skim. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So picture a field, and it says you don't go all the way up to the edge. So what this says is around your field, you have a margin, a margin of extra crops 
for the poor. Now, I love the word margin because I'm a business professor. And so when I think of margin, I think revenue. This is what I've sown. This is what my market is. I think this is what it costs me. And in between there is margin. It's the excess that I have to bless with. So you have margin. In Leviticus 23, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap right up to the edge of the field. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, the things that are left behind. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, 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 for the foreigner, because I am the Lord your God. Have a margin. So around the field, there's always a margin, a section of the field that the farmers left on purpose for the community. Do you know that when you have plenty, you have Something that you can provide at, for hope to the hopeless. So gleaning. I want to tell you a story about gleaning today. How gleaning enabled friendship and strength. How gleaning restored bitterness back to delight. But I'm going to tell you the story as if I told it to a Hebrew audience. So you know, and sometimes we lose things in translation in the Word of God. This might be um, shocking to some of us that the Bible wasn't actually written in our own tongue. It was actually written, um, the Old Testament in Hebrew, and then moving into um, Aramaic a little bit in Greek. Um, the Bible was written in a foreign language. And so when people heard the Word of God in their own language, there was a lot of meaning that we don't always get in translation. So I'm actually going to take all of the names and I'm going to translate them from Hebrew to English in this story because typically we actually use the Hebrew names in the story I'm going to tell you. So sometimes meaning gets lost and in this story names are really important. I'm going to tell you the story of a Hebrew woman called Pleasant or My Delight. It's a beautiful name. Translates to the name Naomi. And she was married to a man called My God is King which we read Elimelech. My God is king, I think sounds better than Elimelech. But somehow, both pleasant and my God is king lost their way. Now, the first way we know this is that they named their kids sick and pining. Now, really hopeful people don't look at their newborn infants and rejoice and say, you will be called sickness and you will be called pining. And this is really fun because pining is a really interesting name to me. Because pining is actually the polar opposite of hope. It sounds like hope, but it actually means to languish, to decline, to lose strength, to weaken, to dwindle, to mope, to brood, to be offended, to suffer with longing. Hmm. So if you heard that a guy named My God is King and a woman named Pleasant had a baby and looked at that child's cherub-like face and called him pining, you might know that this story is going to go to a bad turn. Now, Pleasant and My God is King and their two children, sick and pining, lived in a town called the House of Bread, which we know as Bethlehem. And being Bethlehemites... I think this fed their pessimism, and it fed their anguish, because when we hear the name Bethlehem, what do we all think of? We think of Jesus, oh, little town of Bethlehem, and it's so beautiful, right? 
But actually, Bethlehem came up before it comes up in Ruth, which is after the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, parents, I'm not going to tell the whole story because it's gruesome and worrisome and hard to hermeneutically interpret. So I'm not going to tell you that story. Read Judges 19 through 20. This is the history of Bethlehem. When a Hebrew person hears the story of Pleasant and my God is King. Bethlehem was the home of the tribe of Benjamin. And there, once upon a time, a Levite came with his lady friend. Called him concubines. And for whatever reason, she was abused and she was murdered in Bethlehem. And for some reason, the people of Bethlehem thought, what a great idea if we teach the tribes of Israel a lesson. And so they chopped up her body and put it in 12 boxes and mailed it to the 11 tribes. At which point in time, the 11 tribes said, the Benjamites are creepy neighbors, let's go kill them all. Makes sense, right? So the entire tribe of Benjamin was almost wiped out in Bethlehem. This is the next time Bethlehem comes up. Not a good place. Not a fun place to visit. Not only that, but it's the house of bread. And we know that when the story of Pleasant and My God is King opens, the house of bread is breadless and in famine. How ironic. But this is the beginning of the redemption of the story of Bethlehem because two kings get to be born out of Bethlehem's story. One king will be the grandson of Pleasant and My God is King. And the other son, of course, will be Jesus. So this is the next time the story shows up. Let's return to Pleasant's story. In their, pe their pessimism and lack of perseverance, they take their boys sick and pining from the promised land, the land of bread, to the land where their enemies lived in Moab. They have no expectation of the promised land returning to promise. Dan talked last week about hope being heart, optimist, perseverance, and expectation. They had none of these characteristics. This was a land of milk and honey. And instead of persevering, instead of expecting God to show up again, they leave. And they move to Moab. And initially in Moab, things go pretty well for them. Sick and pining grow, you can see, because their little figures have gotten taller. They grow up and they meet two lovely ladies, one called friendship and one called stubbornness. I think as far as daughter-in-laws go, I know which one I would prefer. But they meet these two awesome girls, and their names are um, friendship and stubbornness. And they're Moabite women. And things are okay in Moab for a season. But then, my God is king and sick and pining, conform to their names, and they die suddenly. And, and uh, Pleasant is left in Moab all alone. And this is not a good place for a woman to be in in ancient Israel, all alone with two daughters and uh, no hope. And so she decides, maybe... Maybe the promised land is a better place. 
But as she heads back, her two daughter-in-laws, um, one of them says, um, I want to go with you. And she says, no, 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 you should stay with your families. There's no hope for me. She's still um, staying true to her track record. There's no hope for me. Stay with your families. And stubbornness says, that's fine. I didn't want to leave Moab anyway. I'm going to stubbornly stay. Um, no, she cries and pretends like she wants to go at first. But then my delight says this, and we are um, not my delight. Friendship says this, and we, we know this passage from the book of Ruth, probably most um, familiarly, where friendship says to my delight, to pleasantness, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Friendship defined. So they get back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. <laughs> and everyone's like, hey, is this pleasant? Is this my delight? Is that who this is? To which pleasant delight says, do not call me pleasantness. Call me bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And this is the best I could do with Photoshop to get her to look angry. <laughs> so Pleasant had lost hope. She was no longer pleasant or delightful. She was bitter. She didn't guard her heart. She was pessimistic. She gave up and had no expectation of delight. But she had friendship. Pleasant delight becomes bitterness when hope fails. And then we get to my favorite part of this whole story. And the whole story is only four chapters long, so you should read it all this week. That's your homework. I give homework assignments. We'll have a quiz next Sunday before worship begins. And um, they get back to Bethlehem, and they're trying to figure out what to do, right? They, Elimelech has given up his rights to his land. They're kind of homeless, um, friendship is a, a foreigner. She has no rights in the land. She's very vulnerable. But there's a guy in town called Strength. We call him Boaz. But Boaz means strength. And he's a really upstanding guy. It says he's Chayel. I love Hebrew. Um, he's Chayel. He is of valor. He's of might. He's godly. And guess what? Around his fields, he's got a lot of margin. He's got a lot of margin. So um, friendship says, I'll go out and I'll glean in the fields because we have no other hope. And bitterness, of course, is like, well, be really careful. You're very vulnerable. Watch out for the guys. Stay close to people that you may know, right? Bitterness, this is what bitterness does. It looks for all the worst case scenarios. And friendship says, I'll go. So bitterness had a relative, and this is from Ruth 2. She had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Strength. And friendship said to bitterness, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Strength. 
who was of the clan of my God is king. And behold, strength came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. That's how you know strength is good, because they say, like, you know, evangelical Christian things. Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Um, And then strength said to his young men who were in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with bitterness from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves of your reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then strength said to friendship, now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged all the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should even take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? And this is, this is so great. Strength answers her and says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And we know the story, right? She, um, friendship is out there in the fields, and she gets so much grain and barley that when she gets back, bitterness, Naomi, now Mara, is like, what? Where did you get all that? Like, were you stealing? What's happening here? And she's like, no, 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 I met strength. I met strength in the field. So she told her about strength and about the fields that she was in. And bitterness says, oh, this man is a close, a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And all of a sudden, bitterness has hope. She says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. We get some expectation of care. So, of course, strength and friendship end up falling in love, as they should. And we see that it all changes, and pleasant is redeemed, because strength marries friendship. And pleasant delight can come back. Bitterness is transformed to to delight through this marriage, and they provide the hope for the future through the son, the birth of their son, Obed. Because if you know the lineage of Jesus, which I'm sure we're all currently memorizing, Obed fathers Jesse, and Jesse fathers David. Strength, Boaz, marries friendship, Ruth. And through gleaning, they provide the opportunity for the greatest kings in Israel's history, who did the greatest exploits in the Bible to come to life. Isn't it great that strength and friendship could overcome bitterness? Their grandson wasn't only the hope of pleasant delight. King David was the hope of Israel. So what does this mean for us today? 
How do we walk this out? And I want to say we've been working out of um, Daniel 11:32 all year. And the passage says those who know their God will stand firm and do great exploits. So what I would say first is be strong. Be a Boaz. Boaz's great exploits weren't that he won battles. It wasn't that he um, had great prophecies or that he was anointed to some great work. He had margin for the people around him that needed hope. That was the greatest exploit. And through that great exploit, all of Israel had hope. And the story of Bethlehem begins to change. So where are your margins? Where do you know, man, I had a great download from the Holy Spirit this week. I've got a little bit extra. My cup is running over. Where have you gotten blessed by God where you say, man, I have a little bit extra I can give because your cup is running over? Gleaning aloud for friendship. And this is the next piece I would say, be a friend. Restoration is not about where we go and the great things that we do as we go from glory to glory. Do you know that restoration is all about the past? That where we go is only going to be more glorious if we see our past restored. So when we think about being friends, Ruth, when she says, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, she was on a journey of restoration. The story is about redeeming my delights and pleasantness's entire past. That when Boaz married Ruth, he took on Elimelech's line and he restored to Naomi everything that she had lost. So in our friendship, we should be asking, is there someone around me who's lost hope to the point they cannot glean for themselves? Maybe today there's someone in your life you can be gleaning for. Bitterness couldn't do it, but friendship could. Gleaning led to hope. And the last thing I would say, if you are relating more to bitterness and you have lost your delight, find a friend. Find a friend. Hebrews 3.13 says, Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Let's not grow hard. Let's look at the friendship, the person that God, the people that God has put next to us, and look to them, because they are told by the writer of Hebrews to encourage one another. And when you have hope enough, you too can glean. And when you glean enough and friendship and strength are married, now you should expect margin for others to glean from you. And whether you're in a valley of gleaning or a mountaintop of great margin, God has provided for you. So I love this when I think about how I've journeyed through this in my own life and what will we do with our margins? How do we put our hope 
to practice. I think of a passage in Luke 10. And in Luke 10 too, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's sending them out, the 72 others and the 12. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. What are your expectations? What are your expectations of what the Holy Spirit can do today? What are your expectations of the harvest that God has for us as a house, for Antioch as a house, for Faith Lutheran as a house? What are our expectations? Do we say the harvest is meager and the workers are less? (laughs) Or do we have an expectation that we have a massive harvest? We have so much that so many people can come and glean. What an amazing harvest. Gosh, I hope bitterness has friends that we can transform her to delight. So about six years ago, I sat in O'Hare Airport. And I was, um, at that time, a marketing professor at Florida State University. I had finished my PhD in business. I had what felt like really big fields. And I've had a couple seasons in life where I really felt like, man, (laughs) I wish somebody would come and glean all the great stuff I have going on right now. And in those moments, either through God's kindness and and bringing on of humility, we'll call it humiliation (laughs) of my pride, or God kindly coming alongside at me and adjusting me in the moment. God met me in that moment because I was interviewing at at a Christian school called Wheaton College. And I looked at Wheaton and I thought, man, I want to have big fields in the secular world. I want to be a missionary in the marketplace. And in that moment, I really feel like God was actually calling me to glean, to to have a field for gleaning where hope was needed. And maybe some of you, all of you, a few of you have jobs Monday through Friday. And you sometimes feel in life that as your job gets better and you get more success in life, it takes away from your ability to serve and to be a part of ministry that is in the church. And you think, gosh, I just wish that I could do more for God. And in that moment, God was speaking to me that there is a whole field that he is sowing into the marketplace And his church needs to know that we can serve him in full-time ministry in the marketplace. And in a moment where it felt better to be at a research school with a big title and lots of prestige and a much nicer paycheck, God said, but what if this isn't the field I need gleaners for? So, as I processed this and and prayed, and I didn't sleep the whole night before, and I have that, you know, that non-sleeping feeling where you kind of feel like you're out of the body, and you're just kind of floating. You know, I'm sitting in O'Hare. I had just gotten off the phone with one of my um, PhD um, advisors, a non-Christian, who told me if I went from a secular university to Wheaton College, I would be a pariah, and nobody would take me seriously as a social scientist if I took on a faith base for the work that I published. Nobody will respect you if you say Jesus. 
I had to look up the word pariah. So if you don't know what pariah means, it means an outcast. I'll help you with that. I didn't know what it meant either. Um, so that was good to know. And I sat there and I thought, okay, God, <laughs> I don't want to be a pariah. I want to be a missionary in the marketplace. And God spoke to me and he gave me this word. And it, it was about more than the great exploits that we do. And we're going to talk about those great exploits from Daniel 11.32 in the next season. It had a lot more to do with my own growth and my own understanding, not of what I was going to go and do, but the gleaning, the wake that I was leaving behind me. So my prayer in every move, in every opportunity, if we want to be opportunistic about it, that God has for me, that my testimony isn't what I go and do, it's what the, I have gone and done. That as Christians, let's take on the responsibility to say, you don't need to restore my past, because glory to glory means that there is restoration and redemption everywhere I go. And I'm a really cheesy academic that is very nerdy in private, actually, no, in public. I'll just admit it to all of you today. And I love to write, and God speaks to me in a lot of different ways. Sometimes in song, when we pray it's anointed so it stays on tune. Sometimes in poem, sometimes in visions, sometimes my favorite times just through the word itself, where the words come alive and you see a story where pleasantness and my God is king, have two weird named children called sickness and pining who marry friendship and stubbornness. And then friendship and delight go to a city and they meet strength. And bitterness can be transformed. The word of God is so amazing for transforming our lives. There's hope. There's so much hope for all of us. So I've been working on shortening my sermons and I don't know if I talked faster or actually succeeded today, but I'm actually going to close because isn't it great to have a little bit of time for us all to meet each other, to make a friend, or to glean a little bit before we go? So bear with me, and I'm going to share with you the poem that God gave me as I sat in O'Hare Airport. And if the theology gets a little wonky because of rhyming, live with it. It is time. It is time to wake up and acknowledge who you are. And if no one ever told you, let me be the one to say that you are no longer who you thought you were. You have a monogram on your shirt with initials that are not yours, a brand that marks you as royalty, like a vision in silk and furs. You have the world at your fingertips because he put it there. He spoke, and then you exist. He is the light, the way, the word. What will you do with all he's given you? A mantle of strength, yet a yoke with an easy burden. Can I do great exploits, you ask? Not in your own strength, you can't. Not if you cling to your own name, but you can change the world, my friend. If you lay down your life, your worries, your fears, just as he laid down his throne, then his life for you. 
It will only require your life to take on the burden of his cross. A simple anthem instead of your own, it's his name instead you shout. When you cry out for recognition, point to him, not to yourself. That strength was never yours, my friend, yet he gave you all he had. You'll walk in all I've done and then more, he said. That's the promise for you now. To take up the mantle and walk, he gives you your own crown. Just make sure you remember who you are before you put it on. Because you carry the hope of heaven and laughter is your strength and love your secret and the world may crush you with worries and hatred and temptation, but the reflection of your love will crumble all the pain that comes your way and you will set striving free. It is time to change the world, my friends. If you can remember who you are, call yourself in his name. He's not ashamed of who you were. This love runs deep and far. So be a bride, a soldier who gets their role, who takes on royalty, not with paparazzi and cameramen, but with humility, grace, and charm. Command the kingdom in the name of the king, the lands that are yours. And when the world comes crashing down, crush its grip with overwhelming love. Now, watch them flood in from afar to learn how it is done. How something so inspiring can come from such a humble one. A torrent of love that flows from you changes the landscapes where you walk. Hope springs, freedom rings, poor, sick, and needy are no more. And if in might you're overwhelmed, lift your eyes to the hills above. Fix your thoughts on the lion, the lamb who reigns forever in love. I tell you again, I know who you are. You are righteous, royal, redeemed. You're restored. And it's time to change the world. Father God, we just thank you today that you have given us strength. We thank you today that you didn't just redeem us, you didn't just save us, but you put us in a church, in a family of people, and you taught us to love each other, to encourage each other, to strengthen each other, that you called us to friendship. So I pray right now, today, Father God, that we recognize who we are. I pray that if we are in bitterness, Lord, that we recognize who you are and who our friends are. And if we are poor and we have no margins, but we have friendship, I pray that you open our eyes to ways we can glean for ourselves and for those around us. And if we have margin to give, let us be the most generous givers that the world will marvel at how we love each other. So we dedicate this message to you today and we say we don't want to be hearers of your word alone, but we want to do it. So Holy Spirit, as we go out this week, open our eyes to practice what you have shown us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.